are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. First reading comes from Job 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on this earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and I not another. How my heart yearns within. The second reading is found in Psalm 6, 1-6. through 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Well, thank you, Barb, for reading scripture for us this morning. Well, where have you seen beautiful mountains or valleys before? As I said, I immediately was brought back to where I grew up in the St. Croix River Valley that borders Wisconsin and Minnesota. There was beautiful scenery all around us, whether it was the high bluffs overhead or it was the wide river below, boats on the water, windy roads through the valleys. But such landscape also came with inherent dangers. And I will always remember learning of a classmate of mine who was swept under the current while tubing behind a boat on the river, never to surface again. The river is beautiful. The river is also dangerous. I also remember another time in the middle of the night when we had a phone call come to our house. My mom was the youth director at our church. So she was like the Megan of the church where I grew up. And a midnight call came in. It was news that one of her students had been just down the valley from us on a windy road at night and had missed a curve, flown off the road, hit a tree, and had died. And I remember our church being overfilled with students from the high school who had come to mourn their friend and were trying to make sense of what was happening in life. And each one of us could probably tell these kinds of stories from our own hometowns from our own lives. We learn from an early age that all is not well in the world. And our kids today are learning very quickly in the context of a pandemic. One of the biggest questions that we wrestle with in our life is how to make sense of suffering. Why are things allowed to go so terribly wrong? Why are we subjected to pain and grief? How could God allow such disastrous things to happen. You know, where was he when my classmate fell off that inner tube and slipped under the currents of the river? Where was he when that car came off the road and struck a tree? Where was he and where is he now while a virus ravages the earth? These are big questions, and we want to create space in the weeks to come to ask them and to turn to scripture together, because we're not left without answer. The Bible, God's written word to us, 
speaks often and profoundly of these things. It doesn't shy away from difficulty. It doesn't offer pat answers. It doesn't ignore the emotions that we feel in life. And so in this tumultuous season, we thought, what a fitting time for us to talk about how to walk through the valley. Psalm 23, you might remember, has this line in it where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's where we thought we'll grab the name right from that passage for our new message series, Through the Valley, What the Bible Says About Suffering. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at a different biblical text each week, a different biblical character, spanning from the Old Testament to the New. As Megan said, this week we begin with the character of Job. Next week, we're going to look to Habakkuk, then the suffering servant, then Jesus' mother Mary, Paul, and then Peter. And yes, that's right. I said Peter, Paul, and Mary. And some of you were instantly taken back to the 1960s. And if you're younger, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but a great folk trio with some great music from an earlier era. So anyway, we're going to spend the next five weeks seeing how the people of God walk through suffering. Not to solve it, but simply to seek some answers together. For the word of God is not silent about these things. And for that reason, we also have a psalm that we're going to pair with the reading each week. And I just can't encourage you enough to get into the psalms these days. Our Project 51 reading plan that takes us through the year, it has us in the psalms a little bit every week, and that's for good reason. Because the psalms is the place in the Bible that gives greatest voice to our deepest sorrow. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been reading in the Psalms and I've said to myself, that is exactly how I feel. That's what I'm trying to say, God. And that's true whether it's a lament or confusion or confession or praise. The Psalms speak the cry of the heart. And so we're going to have a new Psalm for you each week to go along with our reading. But let's start with our character for today. We start with Job. His name looks like Job, but is pronounced Job. They apparently just forgot the bossy E that goes on the end, right, teachers? But Job is the name of a man who lived very early on in the Bible. The book is placed next to the Psalms in the middle, but that is just because of its writing style. It's classified as wisdom literature. But in the timeline, this true story about Job would have been very early on. We can't pin it down exactly, but he would have lived somewhere between the flood, so with Noah, and then the Exodus with Moses. Somewhere in there, we think maybe around the time of Abraham. We do know that Job was successful and prosperous. We know he did well in business. He had a large family and a big estate. Job 1.3 says he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But most importantly, We know that Job was a man who really loved God. He's called a servant of God, this wealthy, wealthy man, and yet he's called a servant of God. And chapter one says that he was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. But here's then what happens in his life. And I'm just today going to give us a short summary of Job's life in this book of the Bible. And then maybe this week as a kind of a homework assignment, you could read Job. It has some length to it, so you'd want to do about six chapters a day, and you would be done before next Sunday. You'd be done Saturday. 
But for today, for now, I'm just going to tell us a little bit about what happened to Job. In the first two chapters of the book, we see Job go from the things I described, success and happiness, to in a matter of days, losing almost everything that he has. And this happens in waves, like just crashing in one after another in Job's life. First, it's his herds of livestock, these vast herds of livestock that are all stolen or killed. And in that event, his servants who were out there tending the livestock were also killed. The second thing that happens is a violent windstorm. We might call it a tornado. So that's what you could imagine. It strikes his house and it topples the home so that his sons and daughters who are inside are all killed. And the third thing then that happens is that Job's own health is struck down and he has horrible, painful sores from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. And all he can do is sit in the dust. It says he has this scrap of broken pottery, probably from the fall of his house. And he sits there and he scratches his wounds. And in all this, it says that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Everything he has has been taken away from him, but Job continues to honor God. In fact, his wife even comes up to him at one point in chapter 2, verse 9, and she says, Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's what she says to him. And what does Job say in response? He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Quite the response. But it doesn't mean that it's easy or that Job is not going to struggle intensely with what is happening in his life. And that's what this book is about. And it's shortly thereafter that three of his friends show up. They've heard about the disaster that has fallen on their friend. And so they go and they see him. And much of the book of Job is actually about the conversations that they have. Job and his three friends. And when they first arrive, their presence is really helpful. It's a ministry of presence. They just show up and grieve with him. They just sit with him and cry together and mourn this terrible tragedy that's happened. Where things start to go wrong are when Job's, we think, well-intending friends start to talk. Because each one of them has a different idea of what Job needs to hear in this situation in his life, and they are going to give it to him. So Eliphaz, the first friend, he's kind of this highbrow moralist who you can picture just he's kind of looking down his nose at Job and he advises Job, this is a time to seek God, he says. That's his advice. Bildad is the blunt friend, the straight shooter. He's going to tell Job just how it is and he accuses him of complaining too much. Job, I sat here for how long and listened to you complain? And he's going to rise up and defend God as if God needed defending, apparently. And then there's the third friend. His name is Zophar. And he's the judgmental one who sees this as a clear sign that Job has sinned somewhere in his life in a significant way. And so now God is going to punish Job. And that's what's happened. And if Job would just figure this out and repent, then maybe things would be put back in order. So those are the three friends or the three stooges, we might call them. And Job says to them in chapter 13, verse 4, he says, you guys are worthless physicians. If only you would be silent, 
that would be wisdom, he says. But that doesn't really help. They continue trying to fix Job until finally a fourth friend of theirs shows up towards the end of the book. His name is Elihu, and he does moderately better at consoling Job and kind of mediating this situation. But still, the story really does not resolve until God finally answers Job. Chapter 38, this is what Job has been waiting to hear. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job. And in the end, Job's friends are humbled. Job himself is humbled. And God not only responds to Job, but he restores his life. It says the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life even more than the former part. One of the concluding lines of the story. That's the book of Job. And a wonderful footnote I read this week, I thought summed it up so well. Listen to this. It says, the book of Job demonstrates that a sovereign, righteous God is sufficient and trustworthy for every situation in life, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Let me read just the beginning again. The book of Job demonstrates that a sovereign, righteous God is sufficient and trustworthy for every situation in life. That's Job. I first discovered the book of Job when I was 19 and a freshman in college. And when I say discover, I mean, I knew about the book and probably read from it as well, but I mean, really discovered it and took it to heart. I had a young professor leading a theology class who was named Richard Mullis, and he was just fantastic. He was sharp as a tack, but down to earth, relatable, authentic, funny. I remember that he could do these Chris Farley impressions that would just bring the house down. But Professor Mullis was also a deep thinker, and I've never forgotten his teaching on the book of Job, because you see, for him, it was a very personal story. Not too many years earlier in his life, his brother had died in a car accident. And in the midst of inconsolable grief, the Lord met my professor in the book of Job, and he used this part of the Bible to bring healing to his pain and loss. And that's when I started reading the book of Job, not just because it was a sign, but because I wanted to know what this man at the front of my classroom knew, how he had been raised up from the depths of tragedy and grief. And so I remember taking my Bible and going to to sit out in a garden courtyard on campus there in California, where, by the way, it does not snow in April. Just a little side note. And there I sat outside, surrounded by flowers and birds and just pouring over the pages of Job and starting to learn about what it means to suffer and remain faithful. Someone asked C.S. Lewis once, why do the righteous suffer? To which he replied, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. And I thought, you know, speaking of Lewis, I want to share something at the outset here. And that is, I hope in this series that you will hear things that are both for the mind and for the heart. It is essential that as we think about these things, we do it on both levels. We think intellectually and emotionally. 
And not like these are two separate parts of the person, like two opposite wings of a house that are spread way out from each other, but as an integrated whole. Because there's times in our lives when we must think about suffering from a more intellectual perspective. In biblical studies, this question, this topic even gets its own name. It's called theodicy. How do we make sense of suffering? How do we understand the relationship between pain and evil on the one hand, and then God's sovereignty and goodness on the other? And it's critical that we think about these things and have a solid foundation to our faith. Because there will be other times in our life when we will have to deal with suffering down here at a heart level. When suffering comes calling and it is not just an academic exercise anymore, but we're living it. And it has come to our own front door and our heart is breaking in the midst of it. And that's, by the way, why we've added the Psalms in the mix. They resonate so much with us. Because they're not cut and dried theology from the classroom, but they're a messy theology of real life. And so our psalm this morning, Psalm 6 verse 3 said, My soul is in deep anguish. And then this refrain from scripture, How long, Lord? How long? Verse 6, All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. And Kidner says, this psalm gives words to those who scarcely have the heart to pray. And that's Job for most of this book. For most of this book, he is in the trenches of grief. And keep this in mind, he does not know how the story will end. And that's what makes his words in chapter 19, I think, so powerful of what Barb read for us. These are words that are spoken not from the mountaintop, but they are from deep down in the valley where the shadows are long and there is no light on the horizon. And from that place, Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And it's such a beautiful passage. Let's just keep reading it again. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, he says. I know my Redeemer lives. And if you have been around church or hymns, old songs, maybe the word Redeemer is familiar. But what does that word actually mean, Redeemer? The word comes from an ancient Hebrew custom where a person's nearest kinsman or relative would pay a price to secure his release. The kinsman redeemer was a guarantor of the other person's rights and privileges. The kinsman redeemer was the one who could rescue you if you were in trouble and could settle the debts and the accounts. So Job, the servant of God, says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I might be waiting for him right now, but I know that he's coming to rescue me. And one way or another, he will set me free from my suffering. And we should note very carefully what Job is asking for. Because as we read his story, we read these words, he is not looking to turn back time. 
He is not looking for his money to be restored or for his health to come back, but his eye is on the prize, and that is to see the face of God, to be in his presence. And I think that's a remarkable thing to say when you have lost almost everything. The words of that song we sing sometimes, give me Jesus. That's all I want. You see, the righteous, those who believe in God and follow Christ, we are not spared the valley of suffering. One of the truths that we see right out of the book of Job is that suffering is no respecter of persons. And the invitation to follow Jesus should never rest upon the false promise of a life without pain. You know, you might be able to turn on the TV and find some preacher somewhere who will try to sell you that, but it is a bald-faced lie and has no basis in Scripture. It's the same kind of poor theology that Job's friends tried to pass off on him. They're looking for cause and effect. It's really easy, Job. What did you do wrong so that God would bring this upon you? And when you do that kind of math with suffering, the totals will never add up, and we're missing the point. The Bible is not so interested in the cause and effect of suffering, but it is very interested in the purposes that God is accomplishing in suffering. Where is God taking me? How do I trust him in the valley? How is he shaping me even now, even when it's painful? And you think of all the ways that Job could have responded, of all the things that he could have said in chapter 19. Ernest Hemingway, the famed writer, he said once, life is just a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. But that's not Job. In his anguish, in his despair, we recognize he could have lost hope. He could have cursed God and died. But he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, He will stand on the earth, and I will be there to see him. My brothers and sisters, I wish we were together, and I could really see you. But I can picture you. I want you to remember that we know the end of the story. The part that is up to you is now what you're going to do here in the middle. What are you going to do with this time that we're living in? What are you going to do with what is happening in your life right now? It's a fallen, sinful world that we live in. And next week, we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. But for today, here's my question for you. Will you love and trust God even in the valley? The one who lived for you, who died for you, and who rose for you, who bought you with a price to give you all the inheritance of heaven, that one day you will see him face to face and be with him forever. What is the purpose of a pandemic? I don't know. But I do know his purposes for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, 
Our time is in your hands. And even when we don't understand the times we're in, Lord, we trust you. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us the strength to endure the valley, to follow you steadfast, even when the following is hard. Your word says that you are faithful and kind, that your purposes for us are always good. And so, Lord, we cry out with the psalmist this morning and we say, turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. And it's in the unfailing name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.